It's got to be the, the most common art form that we experience every day. I mean, we see thousands of words all day long, and I don't think anyone thinks about the typefaces that those words are in, or that there are people who made those typefaces and designers who decided to use those typefaces in this certain situation. So I think, um, I mean, I'm interested in those kind of um, things that are invisible until you really kind of, someone points them out to you, and then after that you're like, oh my god, how did, how did I not see, how did I not notice this before? From Outface Productions, this is Listening Glass. Arjuna, what do you got for us this week? Robin, I am so stoked. Like, I really am super excited about the topic this week. It's something which is near and dear to my heart, but which you and I have had a number of discussions about. We're starting in the broad world of typography, and the specific topic that we're covering is the release of the first Helvetica font family in 35 years. Now, I understand that Helvetica is kind of a big deal in general, right? It is. I don't know a lot about typefaces, but there was a documentary made about Helvetica, right? There was, yep. It was in 2007, and it was to celebrate the 50th year anniversary of the mm -hmm. creation of Helvetica. And actually, the voice that you heard on the beginning of this podcast is from the director himself, Gary Hustwit. And uh, I would highly recommend Helvetica to anyone. It's just a really fantastic documentary. And he has a lot of great designers and great thinkers in the world of graphic design and typography on that film. So, you know, if you want to learn more about Helvetica, that's really a great place to start. Thanks so much, by the way, to Gary for letting us use that excerpt in this show. So... I'm going to go a little deeper on Helvetica later in this episode, but let's just give the broad strokes overview for why Helvetica has been important. Okay. It was post-World War II era that we're talking about. The printing press had been invented for a long time. To print things, you have to actually, you know, you have to design the letters. And so there have been many different typefaces over the years, which have different designs to them. And... Ones that people commonly recognize are like Times New Roman. It's kind of like your standard yeah. essay writing exactly. type. And another one that you might see on your computer a lot is Arial, which mm. is, that's, that's a redesign of Helvetica. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. Comic Sans is another example of a typeface. Sans. Which, sans. Sans. Comic <laughs> Le sans comique. <laughs> These are just a few different examples, and it's basically just the styling of the type. And there are lots of technical terms which differentiate one family of type from another. One of the biggest distinctions would be serif versus sans serif. <laughs> the serifs refer to the little, they're like these little decorations, mm -hmm. sometimes these little kind of hooks or sticky outy bits. Right, like Times New Roman is kind of a classic serif font, right? Yes, that's correct. So it has the little tails and the, the tips of the T and the tops and bottom of the H's and things like that. Right. So I guess just uh, in general, people used to decorate their text more. What started to happen over time was text and typefaces have kind of shifted along with other aesthetics 
throughout the ages. So for example, you know, when the Renaissance was happening, people might talk about Renaissance music and Renaissance painting and mm -hmm. uh, Renaissance clothing, right? There was also text that was popular during the Renaissance. Yeah. You know, ways of writing and decorating, which were just kind of common and which were part of everyday life. And they reflected the aesthetic ideals of the time. Right. Just in that way, the text of the time has also, it's, it's followed along. I wonder if serifs versus non-serifs have been used for different types of documents over time. I remember hearing on Radiolab that they were finding all these ancient garbage heaps in like Mesopotamia or, or Egypt or somewhere over there. And they were super stoked because they found a bunch of um, books. And they were thinking they were going to find like the Dead Sea Scrolls or something. And the vast majority of what they were finding was smut. <laughs> Taste it's like it. erotic smut. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Which to me is just like, that is probably not in calligraphy. You know, it's like, yeah. just jotting this down. When you get into religious texts and things like that, I bet it was, you know, the monks were putting a lot of effort into their script and things. But Oh, baby. Like today, you know, there's a difference in what we use. Like Comic Sans is obviously a resume font. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so basically what's, what happened was in the 20th century, we saw the rise of what we now call modernism. Now it looks a little retro to us, but at the time it was, it was very modern. Mm -hmm. And what was going on post-World War II was the full flourishing of a style that we now call mid-century modernism. And it was characterized by, there was a great economy of design. There was a, a minimalism to it, whether it was furniture, clothing, architecture, whatever it was. There was a certain reductive simplicity to it. There was a certain elegance and it coincided with the industrial era as well. As industry rose, there were a lot of things that started to look like they were made by machines, right? Mm -hmm. And there were certain shapes that were just easier to stamp out, certain things that were uh, easier to produce. And you just saw this general movement away from deeply ornate things and highly decorated things. And you saw this movement towards these sleek designs and simpler shapes and there was more metal in things things were a bit shinier yeah that's interesting even in natural materials like you, you know there's a lot of wood in mid-century modernism but it, it tends to be a bit more understated and there were also you know you started to see a lot of composite materials like composite wood for example in the mid-century in mid-century modernism okay yeah, exactly huh. And so, um, so anyway, there was this whole aesthetic, and, and if you're interested in learning more about that, just look it up, mid-century modernism. Uh, you, you can probably read a lot about it right now because it's in vogue again. But anyway, one of the expressions of this uh, mid-century modernism was that there was this movement going on in mainland Europe. You saw it a lot in Germany. You saw it a lot in uh, Switzerland, which is where Helvetica comes from. There was this movement towards creating typefaces the ideal was that they were supposed to be modern, they were supposed to be simple, they were supposed to be clean, they were supposed to be neutral in their flavor. The mm -hmm. idea was that people wanted to be able to use these typefaces and have no intrinsic value in them. They didn't want for people to look at them and to take a context from the writing. Right. This was kind of in vogue and... There was a typeface known as Accidents Grotesque, 
This was an existing typeface at the time, which was intended for trade printing, forms, tickets, any, you know, like a bus ticket, something that mm -hmm. you just wanted to be highly legible. Yeah. And things maybe that you wanted to be readable from a distance as well. Do you have any theories as to why this design shift happened post-war? Why things became sleek and elegant and reductionist as opposed to... I don't even know any styles before that, except for something quite a ways before it, which would be Art Deco, which is full of frills and ornamentation. And I don't know if that... that I think I associate that with the 1920s, but maybe that kind of had a, th a solid thread up until maybe around the war era. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not super clear on my, you know, the, the history of aesthetic eras, mm -hmm. but you're right. Yeah. Deco is an example of, of an older and more ornate design, which is interesting though, because if you compared some Deco designs to some even older designs, like from, you know, the 19th century or earlier, a lot of those deco designs even look reductionistic and more simple. If you think about like the Romantic era or like the Baroque era, right? It was all about curly cues and flourishes. and Because mm -hmm. you can only afford one book a year. So you buy <laughs> really yeah, fancy letters. Back when the rate of information consumption was a fraction of what it is today, you know? Totally. It's like everything had to count, man. So, you know, it's a profound question, really. Why do aesthetics change over time? And all of this makes me want to just get into the first major bullet point that I wanted to talk about here, which is the history of written language. Well, so why don't we just dive into that really quickly now as I start to real reading, quick, just the whole history of written language. No biggie. No, no biggie. You know, we're just going to bite off about 10,000 years of history here. It's really fascinating, man. I mean, I could really do a whole podcast just about this. I'll spare you guys, but let's take it way back. So about 10,000 years ago, this is around 8,000 BC in Mesopotamia, which is actually uh, you referenced that earlier with all the smart. So Mesopotamia, this is a geographic region which we now in the Western world refer to as the Near East or the Middle East. This part of the world was really happening in 8000 BC. It was, it was kind of a meeting place for many different cultures. There was a lot of trade going on, uh, lots of farming going on. It was just really a bustling part of the world during that time. So the earliest record that we currently have of the origins of written language come from this time, and they actually weren't written at all. People were using statues, basically little clay statues, which they would shape in various forms, which were designed to represent quantities of certain goods. It was a way of cataloging things. For example, uh, people would, they would have a shape, maybe like a little pyramid that they'd crafted in clay, which would represent a large quantity of grain. You might have a little sphere which represented, you know, an urn of oil. They'd fashion these little figurines in basic shapes to represent different quantities of common goods. Interesting. So this is before writing? Yes, this is correct. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, be before written records. So now what started to happen was people would store their little collections of representations of their goods in these clay, they call them clay envelopes. 
an urn or, or some kind of holding shape that would hold all of your little clay trinkets. What they started to realize was that it was kind of difficult to keep track of what you had if you had to pull it out of the of the envelope every time to kind of, okay, like, hmm. how many spheres do I have and how many triangles do I have? And if especially people who had to track a lot of stuff, uh, it got kind of challenging to do. And so what they started to do was they would just take those objects and they would make a little imprint in the clay envelope that was holding them for each mm. object that was going in the envelope. So basically what you would do is you would mark the outside of the envelope when you added one of these objects to it. And it was a quick visual reference. This was kind of the, the transition from 3D representation to 2D representation. And that was the first layer of abstraction. Well, the, the original layer of abstraction was you know, making a facsimile in the first place. So this is the second layer of abstraction was people, you know, making these these marks in the clay. So this was about 3500 BC, people were doing this. This practice of imprinting on these envelopes led to uh, people just skipping the object altogether and just having these clay tablets. So they'd have a sheet, it's like a sheet of paper, except it was thicker and it was made of clay. <laughs> and they would just imprint in the clay. And so mm -hmm. they did away with the actual 3D objects altogether. And so this was like proto-paper, basically. So this kind of led to a certain kind of creation of the ideogram. An ideogram is the abstract representation of a thing that has no phonetic clue as to its word or sound in language. Like a dollar sign is an example of an ideogram. It's a thing that we recognize, it's a shape that we recognize and we know what it means, but the dollar sign isn't a word and it doesn't make right. a sound. So it's not related to spoken language. That's kind of cool. So, But if I drew like a cat icon, that's not an ideogram because we have the word cat. Well, we do, but, but a cat icon is an ideogram because it's not, it doesn't spell the word cat. Oh, okay. People are operating on this ideographic level. Then people switched to pictographs, the same thing, but instead of imprinting into clay, they started to use a stylus or a pen. And so this was the transition. This is when people started actually writing, like inscribing, doing something that looks like we know as writing. And so this was happening in 3100 BC. And then uh, another layer of abstraction came along that, which was that someone would make Let's say they would draw a triangle to represent a quantity of grain, and then they would put three dashes next to it, which would indicate, indicate a quantity. So instead of having three triangles in a row, you would have a triangle and three dashes. And so this is where the concept of written numbers started to come about. People tracking quantity, basically coming up with a graphic which only tracks quantity of a thing. And which mm -hmm. can be represented, you know, can be used to represent a quantity of anything. So the number started to have its own intrinsic value as a quantity. So this led to a radical economy of signs. People could communicate a lot of information in a relatively small amount of space. So now around 3000 BC, about 100 years after that, people started getting really into this writing thing. They were like, you know, what else, what else can we do with this? And so people started actually creating something that looked a bit more like what we use written language for today, which is to represent phonetic signs. There were these fragments of speech which were committed to a sign. Hmm, I thought you were just going to jump to smut. <laughs> what can we do with this? I'm sure the smut was happening all along the way, you know. <laughs> but yeah, we need words first.
<laughs> first, there. first words, then first smart. words. Yep. This was pre-alphabet, but it was mm. people using these different symbols, which made certain sounds, which you could use to form together a spoken language. A modern version of this would be if you wanted to say the name Neil, you might write a sign showing a pair of bent knees. And that would be an example of, you know, kneeling, which would evoke in your mind the word kneel. That's kind of a crude estimation of what this written language looked like and what it was doing. Okay, so during all of this time, all of this inscription had only been used for trade. It was basically uh, people tracking quantities of goods. It was a very kind of a, a market approach to language. But the first time that people started using writing or inscription that didn't deal with accounting was in 2700 BC. And this was when people started making inscriptions on stone seals or like a metal vessel that they would put on tombs. So commemorating the dead. Importantly, in 1500 BC, this is when the first alphabets emerged. The invention of the alphabet was a massive, massive deal. It basically created the paradigm that we still use today. And one of the interesting things to know is that the, the old Mesopotamian alphabet has not been modified that much to create oh. like the Roman-based alphabet that we use today. So they were using 22 characters. And it's just kind of fascinating the fact that the alphabet, even though it has changed in different languages, you know, like with the Cyrillic alphabet being a, a really notable example of how much you can change it. Cyrillic, is that like what Russian is based on? Correct. Yeah, okay. correct. By and large, when we're talking about this kind of, um, maybe I'll just call it like the Western concept of the alphabet, it really hasn't changed much since... 1500 BC. So that just fascinates me. You know, it's about 3,500 years that we've been using the same concept for our written language. That's pretty cool. That's kind of profound to think about that most things, most systems that we develop with culture and technology tend to get more elaborate over time. And language inherently, you know, is composed of simple parts that the complexity comes out of the arrangement of those simple parts. The study of the development of language is fascinating. I highly recommend learning more about it. Now, let's catch up quickly to the printing press. So fast forward to the 10th or 12th centuries. This is about 1000 AD. We start seeing people actually forming type, forming a little letter out of clay or stone. Um, which you use to, it's a stamp, right? You basically create a language stamp. So people started doing this where they, they made these individual letters and characters that were designed to be sequenced together to make type. Typography with movable type, this was invented during the 11th century Song Dynasty in China by a person named Bi Shang. He was using a movable type system that was manufactured from ceramic materials. But, you know, as with a lot of things, the clay gave way to wood. People were using wood type for a while, and then eventually metal type. You started to see that come along. So they, they skipped straw type, um, which was probably for the best. And wool type. <laughs> yeah, wool type didn't last very long. Yeah. Then in 1439, Johannes Gutenberg, the famous Johannes Gutenberg, came along. 
and he invented basically the prototype of the modern printing press. He was a goldsmith, so he was used to working with metal, but he developed a lead-based alloy for printing type, and he did such a good job with it that the modern lead-based alloys that are used to make type are pretty much the same as what he came up with. So he really nailed it. He learned that lead was a great... Uh, you know, not a good tool for ingesting, but a very great tool for making type out of. <laughs> his printing press and his approach to making type out of lead basically launched the printing revolution. Unfortunately, the first book that he printed was not smut. It was actually the Bible. <laughs> and so people call this the Gutenberg Bible. But mm-hmm. I'm sure the second thing that was printed was some yeah. kind of racy. And, and the third thing, come on. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> exactly. So people rolled with the printing press for a while, and then in 1874, we saw the invention of the typewriter, movable type in a compact environment. So the typewriter was pretty much used up until the invention of the computer. That's kind of the history of mechanical type as we know it. let's talk about computers real quick computers came along and they were developed you know what we now call a computer is was kind of being developed concurrently with you know with world war ii happening original computers were using these punch cards they were using kind of abstractions of language to perform their computations but when computers started displaying text they were using a form of type that we call monotype and this is something that, that you know a lot about, Robin, I'm sure, because you write code for a living. I see it a lot. I don't know if I know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I've learned that I actually really like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, monotype has this very particular aesthetic, right? One of the things that sets monotype apart is that it's basically type on a grid. Mm-hmm. And so each letter has a box essentially assigned to it. Mm-hmm. And the letters are basically tasked with filling that box and not moving in on anyone else's box. Right. And all the boxes are the same size. So, you know, if like on the first line, we type three lowercase i's, which in a, a non monospace font, that would take up very little space. Those would take up the same amount of space as on the line below if we did three lowercase s's. Right. Which are much wider as letters, but. The way a monospace I is written is it has very like long serifs on the base for a lowercase i, like a huge little platform that it sits on. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, these are very distinct typefaces, and but they made sense for the computer era and especially for code because code has a really exacting syntax. And for example, you really needed to be able to see like if there was a blank space you really need to be able to see a carriage return or a, a, a or imagine binary written out right if you have more ones in a sequence than zeros then that sequence would look much shorter and it might be hard to tell if you know something has a correct number of bits or whatever so yeah my assumption anyway is that is that monotype was developed to make coding easier and clearer mm. mm-hmm People were using that on, you know, their their computer consoles basically until the 80s. Now, the 80s saw the explosion of the personal computer. And so we started seeing like those early Mac computers. 
And what what those computers allowed people to do is they actually, you know, allowed for the creation of rudimentary graphic software and graphic representation. And that meant that people could actually start to fashion more sophisticated text to be digitized. So that's when we started to see existing typefaces and fonts digitized. So hence, 1983, Helvetica Neu came along. And that was, you know, so that that was a reimagining of Helvetica to be used on the computer. And they made some adjustments to the original design of Helvetica because, you know, Helvetica was designed to be printed physically and it was designed to look a certain way Mm. and the demands of the digital era were different. Text created on a monitor looks very different than text printed on paper. Yeah. Have you gotten a sense of changes they made toward that end? Was Helvetica Neu... Is that more commonly used today than, say, vanilla Helvetica, as it was conceived in 1957? Helvetica Neu was was designed specifically for computers, whereas there were other forms of Helvetica which were uh, retro reimaginings of Helvetica for the computer. And so it was basically the transcription of Helvetica to computer, whereas Helvetica Neu was designed specifically to be used on the computer. So let's uh, get into what makes Helvetica Helvetica. First of all, yeah, it was developed in 1957 by Max Miedinger and Eduard Hoffmann, and they were working at the Haas Type Foundry, and this was in Münchenstein, Switzerland. Like I said before, it was inspired by Accident's Grotesque, which was this German typeface. And interestingly enough, I just thought it was fascinating that it came full circle, that Accident's Grotesque was designed to be a trade typeface, right? Mm-hmm. Just like the very first representations of grain all the way back 10,000 years ago were also used in commerce. So there was just some kind of neat symmetry there, historical symmetry. The need for representing goods and trade is still driving the development of written language today. So where does the name Helvetica come from? Well, it's a modification of the word Helvetia, which is the Swiss name for Switzerland. Really? Yep. So it's like saying Swiss font. That's it. So yeah, Switzerland and Helvetica are just synonymous, right? Helvetica was designed absolutely to be a very modern font. Like we said before, it was designed to be a very neutral font. It was designed to have a certain simplicity about it, but also a certain boldness about it. And and when you pull it up and when you look at Helvetica, it's like, bam, it's a very impactful font, right? Mm it really makes a statement. And it's interesting because it makes a statement while not making a statement, while being essentially neutral. Exactly. That's what's so kind of interesting about it, is I agree there's something very attractive and weighty about the text, but there aren't really... I don't have any connotations with it, except sheer class. (laughs) You know? Just... Yeah. That's it. It's not, like, funny. It's not even... It's not... I don't know, I guess I was going to say it's not serious, but like fonts, you know, in comparison to something like Comic Sans or like a goofy font, maybe it's weighty, but it just it has no connotations, which is exactly what you want if you want to be able to convey any range of ideas. Well, the interesting thing is that it started that way, but 
over time, what happens is things get used for different things and they start to pick up meaning, right?、Mm -hmm. So let's explore some of the things that Helvetica has been used for. You know, a lot of different people were trying to design these interesting、um, modernist fonts at the time. And it just so happened that, like everything else, Helvetica went viral. So Helvetica、mm -hmm. was just, it was a new kid on the block, and it just happened to be the one that stuck.、Uh, mm -hmm. It struck a chord with people. It just it, it did what it did so well, and it had such class. We started to see people around the world using Helvetica. Let's just talk about some examples of where it's been used.、Uh, one of the ones that is most often cited is that it is now the typeface used on the New York subway. And interestingly、oh. enough, it didn't start with Helvetica. They, they actually used this modernist font called Standard. But then what started to happen was that Helvetica crept in. There were certain things that、um, they liked about Helvetica, which they started to use. And then eventually, It became the default typeface for the New York subway. Another famous logo is the American Airlines logo, which is just the two A's.、Mm -hmm. Those are Helvetica. Really? Yep. The uppercase A's, right? Yes, that's correct.、Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then over time, we just started to see all of these companies started to use it. So here's an example of some modern companies that use it 3M, the company that makes scotch tape, American Apparel, notable Helvetica users. BMW, General Motors, Jeep, all of those car companies use it. JCPenney, Lufthansa, that's another、um, airline. I mean, maybe we need to swap it into our logo.、Uh, we'll get to that in a moment, actually. So,、uh, Motorola, Verizon, Target, Texaco,、mm -hmm. Tupperware, Skype. What about Rubbermaid?、Uh, I don't know about Rubbermaid. Rubbermaid's not cool enough. Mm hmm. It became adopted as a standard typeface for a lot of different government documents around the world. So, US federal income tax documents. In the EU, Helvetica is legally required to be used for health warnings on tobacco products like cigarettes. There was a, a famous proponent of Helvetica in the 20th century, was this designer called Massimo Vignelli.、Hmm. And he's often been quoted as the man who brought Helvetica to America. He had some strong opinions about typefaces, and he, here's a quote from him, which I think is interesting. He said, In the new computer age, the proliferation of typefaces and type manipulations represents a new level of visual pollution threatening our culture. Out of thousands of typefaces, all we need are a few basic ones and trash the rest. Hmm. So he had a handful of typefaces that he thought were really significant. What do you think about that? Do you think he's right?、Uh, I don't agree with him. <laughs> yeah. I know when I'm looking for a font for something like our logo, say. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of overwhelming how many fonts there are. Yeah. And, but I don't think that's a good reason to have fewer of them. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is. You can stop and think for a moment, like, oh, maybe, maybe Massimo Vignelli's onto something, right?、Mm -hmm. But then, like, just think about when you're at a bookstore and you're looking at all of the book covers, right?、Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're walking down a street somewhere and you're looking at the shop signs, right? Or、mm -hmm. in a magazine. Just think about、yeah. all of the different places where you see written text. Think about the level of uniqueness that that imparts to what、mm -hmm. it is that you're reading, right? Mm -hmm. Something that、um, we haven't discussed yet, which I think is really interesting about text and about type, is that 
the letters themselves are a form of art. Arguably, they are a form of art. And certainly when you look at some of these typefaces, you know, you'll have like these really ones that are designed to look like cursive writing or, you know, mm -hmm. ones that are designed to look like cats or all of these different typefaces that you can find. They all have like an artistic spin on them, which is designed to impart a certain meaning. Yeah, that's interesting that you call it art. Um, I've, I haven't thought about this a whole lot, but... I'm tempted to distinguish between art and design. Ah, the age-old distinction. It feels like it's, it squarely falls within design, and it might even be an opportunity to kind of distinguish between the two, where there's something about the designing it for reusability. Like art, you create a one-of-a-kind thing, and a letter, you design it so that it's for reuse. I don't know. Does that make sense? You design a bicycle, or you make an art bike, but you make one. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are many people who've made that argument throughout the ages, and I think it's a valid viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And I don't think ultimately there will ever be an arbitration on one side of it or another. You know, where does yeah. design end and art begin, right? Mm -hmm. But definitely the alphabet and the various forms that we found for it, I think, have elements of both. Mm -hmm. And I think some of the art of it has been lost because, uh, because of the ubiquity of the language. Like, for example, people still find well-written handwriting to be aesthetically pleasing. And I would agree with you, I don't think art is the only thing that writing is. Mm -hmm. But I do think that wherever you have an aesthetic inclination on anything there is a certain amount of art in it i believe mm -hmm. i agree yeah not that it doesn't have soul design <laughs> yeah but but i agree you know design when we're talking about design and aesthetics and art you you know you're kind of talking about the meeting of form and function this show is sponsored by megan brandenburg design your brand illuminated does your project or business need a more cohesive visual identity? Do your marketing materials need pizzazz? Megan is your go-to. She also offers apparel design, product packaging design, and motion graphics. Megan worked with us to design the Listening Glass logo, and we love the stunning result. Megan is on Instagram at Megan Brandenburg Design. Find the full link in the episode description. Interestingly, what, what happened over time, like I said before, is that Helvetica started to take on meaning in the writing. It started to mean a certain kind of modernism. It started to, uh, you know, people recognized it from logos. You know, I remember I was uh, living in England around the turn of the year 2000. And I remember just like all over Europe, Helvetica was just synonymous with like cool, sexy modern you just had like deodorant body wash uh any kind of cool shop selling clothing right i feel like there's like a name brand clothing like like calvin klein or something you know like there's that they might even use it you know where it is just this kind of ultra normal <laughs> yes <laughs> i think that's a good way to put it i'm surprised at how few fonts are able to pull that off after having shopped for good ones right 
So yeah, it's normal, but it's also cool, right? It also、mm-hmm. has something like it, it. There's something about it. It's like quintessential. Yeah, it is.、Mm-hmm. It's quintessential. However, people started to run into problems with Helvetica. So one of the problems with Helvetica was that it wasn't designed to be a very small typeface. So when you print it at the smaller,、uh, smaller point sizes, or maybe if you put it on something like a cell phone, a small mobile device, the old Helvetica doesn't look very good.、Hmm. The letters scrunch together. They're kind of the the spacing isn't quite right.、Uh, the kerning is kind of off. Is the kerning the same as the space between them? Or yes, that's correct.、Okay. So kerning、okay. refers to the amount of white space that you have between your letters.、Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about kerning is that it's set per typeface. You can adjust the kerning when you use a, a you know dedicated graphic design software. But each font has its kind of own kerning designed out of the factory,、mm-hmm. and so graphic designers found that they were having to mess with the kerning a lot、uh, when they were using Helvetica at different sizes. So if you think about it, if you put signing on a billboard, you have different considerations than when you put signing like in a little six-point font on your cell phone. The scale of a thing makes the requirements different.、Mm-hmm. So, for example, Helvetica it has a certain weight to it to make it legible, to make、uh, the lines thick enough that you can read them when they're small, right? But when you take that and you blow it up onto a big sign, if you have the same weight to that font, the same thickness of the words, they look really fat.、Mm. They look very big. And、mm-hmm. they they look bold when they're not designed to be. That's because there are different requirements at that size. And so, what people have been doing over time and in the modern era is they've been designing these different weights of the type to be used for different applications.、Uh, similarly, the kerning just did, all of the requirements change when you radically change the scale of the typeface.、Mm-hmm. And so, graphic designers were getting kind of tired of working around Helvetica's limitations in this regard. And something interesting started to happen, which was that major companies, and especially major tech companies, started abandoning Helvetica.、Hmm. Google, for example, used to use Helvetica. However, in 2011, they ditched it to design their own typeface,、hmm. which we are actually using in our logo. Right. Cool. I'm glad that we had shared because I <laughs> I do like Helvetica a lot, and it didn't actually occur to me to even consider it for our logo. Yeah.、Um, but I love the what is it called? It's just called Google Sans, right? It's called、using? Product Product Sans. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Product Sans. Yeah. It makes us so corporate. I know, man. We're just we're <laughs> keeping up with the times, you know. <laughs> so one of the reasons why Google abandoned Helvetica was that. It just wasn't actually a particular. It wasn't working very well、mm-hmm. for a lot of the digital products that you know they they wanted to move into the cell phone space, and of course you know Google's all about the internet. So Helvetica just wasn't quite working for them. So they redesigned. They made their product sans font, which is a really fantastic font. I gotta say,、mm-hmm. it's a little more geometric. It's a little simpler. And then Apple, they used to use Helvetica as their default font. But then they too abandoned it, and、uh, 
they created um i think that font's called san francisco really is it also very similar to helvetica it's similar but you know importantly different some other large companies that used to use helvetica ibm same with netflix so what we started to see was that all of these big tech companies were basically saying Helvetica just doesn't really work in the digital space. Yeah, you know what happened is they they had like way too many people on their design and tech teams and they were just <laughs> like, well, <laughs> well <laughs> might as we well create a new plot now. <laughs> better, better design a typeface. <laughs> yep. Okay, so enter Helvetica now. Again, let's just remember that Helvetica Neu had been developed in 1983 and there had been no substantial furtherments of the typeface until now. They set out big with this one. Their tagline is everyone, everywhere, everything. So basically, Helvetica now is just trying to take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> All of those other typefaces, don't even worry about it. So what they've done with Helvetica now is that they're aiming to solve all of the problems that Helvetica has encountered. And they're doing so by they have three what they call optical sizes. They've designed it for three different use cases. The first one is micro. So that's specifically to use on devices like phones. The next one's called text. This is just, it's kind of the general use one. And interestingly, they said that they intended it for use in visually crowded environments. Mm -hmm. So they put a little more white space into the design so that it would be a bit easier to read. Mm -hmm. For the average user, you know, you're not really going to see that. But you might, in the back of your mind, just think, oh, this text is a little more pleasant or easy to read. Yeah. You might trip on the words a little less. You know what's just kind of weird to me right now is how fonts are used for marketing. Yeah. But this font is being marketed. Like I'm used to seeing fonts is just like a thing. It's a thing in a list and a program and I choose it. But this is like, it's very uh, explicitly marketing itself or some body of people is marketing it to have some kind of market share. Right. Right. And, and get it kind of in, have as much text as possible in it. And it's like, they, it's like Google and Apple broke up with them and they're like, oh, we want you back, baby. Like, <laughs> I've changed. Take me back. <laughs> I've modernized. And Google's like, eh, we just spent half a billion dollars on a new font. Sorry. <laughs> well, you know, you bring up a really excellent point, Robin, which is that it's a new context, you know, that we're seeing. I mean, I get, you know, to be honest, it's not that new. I think that typefaces have been vying for use for a long time. Mm -hmm. People design a thing and they want to be able to sell it, right? Mm-hmm. And so the jockeying isn't new necessarily, but I think one of the things that does feel at least like a modern version of it is that people are really selling. They're like, they're selling a lifestyle, right? They're, and and they're, they're selling it to companies. And then the companies mm -hmm. are using that to sell to their customers. Mm -hmm. And there's like a level of communication that's going on there, which to me feels deeper. It feels like there's more psychology behind it. There's more layers of selling going on, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of what, what you're picking up on, right? Yeah. It's like you can say anything. You can write anything in Helvetica and it looks elegant. Like dildo. <laughs> Smut. <laughs> Smut. It's elegant. 
if only my my texting apps supported it you know i wouldn't get as much flack for the things i say to people now before we gloss over it, the uh, the third optical size of helvetica now is the display size and that's the the one that's designed to be used in large applications like billboards <laughs> So let's talk about our visceral reactions to Helvetica now, Robin. How do you feel looking at it? Let's look at a common example here. So, so just like like let's just zoom out for a moment. Don't don't get technical. Just like okay, how do you feel reading it? It looks elegant and clear. It's a pleasing font. Does it look vanilla to you? Actually, yes. It looks very vanilla, but. It's like the best kind of vanilla, mm. if, if you will. So French vanilla. It's like French, exactly, <laughs> with like fresh vanilla sprinkled into it, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not just like cheap grocery store stuff, you know? Okay. Now, when you compare the Helvetica Now Micro to the Helvetica Now text below it, mm-hmm. what differences do you see? Well, the micro has, as you said, larger kerning. So there's a lot more space between the letters. It makes it look a little awkward. Yeah. At this size, I know it's called micro because it's meant for a smaller screen size. Or not a smaller screen size, but a smaller font, right? And so yeah, if this was the fine print on a smartphone, your screen might even have high enough resolution to print it okay. But your eyes, if you're not, if your face isn't against the screen, it might be hard to read without that extra spacing between the letters. They kind of smush together. So, yeah, I get that. And then the opposite for the display version, right? Which is meant for larger signs and things where the letters are much closer together, tight. Right. So that's one of the one of the first things that stood out to me, too, is that you get successively less white space between the letters mm-hmm. as you jump up in the size. Mm-hmm. So that's a very clear example of where they're making the differences. I would love to see them make a mono space font. <laughs> I want yeah. Helvetica mono. Yeah, that that probably is. That probably yeah. is. Now, okay, something that stands out to me as well is let's look at the lowercase a from the micro mm-hmm. to the text and the display. Oh. Look at the evolution there. Yeah. It's a little less ornate in the micro. Correct. Okay. It's kind of metaphoric or emblematic of the difference in general is that they've simplified some of the letters a little bit for the micro Mm. because the subtleties are lost at that size anyway. Interesting. Okay. Also the E, you know how the, the, so the E, the bottom hook. Yeah. It kind of, it approaches the um, midline, right? To the right, but it, it leaves that opening, which makes it an E instead of an O with a line through it. Yeah, it's like a 30-degree angle. Mm-hmm. And that opening is bigger on the smaller version. Yes. Which makes sense. It makes that gap more salient. And so there are just all... Now, now this one blew my mind when I figured it out. Look at the lowercase t of the micro one. Okay, micro, yep. Okay, now look at the three... What do I want to call them? At the top, you have the left and the right and the top of the little cross there, okay? Yep. If you look closely, they taper towards where they meet. Yeah, that's actually one of the first things I noticed about this font, and it, it bothered me. <laughs> well, so this is interesting. Do you know why they do that? 
Um, so this is for the micro version. Yeah. And my guess, I was going to say something about, it does make the ends of the cross stick out a little more from the center. Yeah. Right. And so it kind of, it kind of weights the ends of those, of those cross points a little bit. Also, I noticed they're relatively longer. Mm Mm-hmm. They are. Than the, the ones meant for a larger format. But I just, I guess... I'm assuming that that does just make it more T-like, right? And at a small font. Yeah, it translates better to the eye. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons for that is another thing that you notice is that the weight of the font, the thickness of the letters mm-hmm. is thicker in the micro right? than it is in the other two. Yeah. Now, there's a point at which when your letters get really thick, a junction like where the horizontal on the T crosses the vertical, if it's really thick and if it's at a small size, it can actually look visually crowded. Hmm. Um, It can actually create this optical illusion of that joining point being kind of fat. Wow. And so this is like a, it's like they've slimmed it, man. They've They've put makeup on it to make it look slimmer. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. The T's are so different from display to text to micro. Um, the width of it, too, is different, right? Like down at on display, the T is really narrow. Yeah. It gets wider and wider. So the arms of the cross get longer, and then the little tail at the bottom gets longer, too. Yeah, exactly. So these are just these are all the little subtle differences that type designers make to make the letters work for different applications. One of the kind of underappreciated arts in terms of design is that when you're designing something that is going to be used like millions of billions of times, right? Which is like Mm -hmm. something as basic as a letter of the alphabet. You really have to put a lot of consideration into it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these distinctions, they might seem kind of very tiny and subtle, and they might even seem meaningless. But when you think about the sheer amount of the application of this stuff, it can actually make a big difference. Mm -hmm. So improving legibility can, for example, it can help people who have visual impairments. Maybe it can help people who struggle with dyslexia or there are also things like uh, it can help the distance at which something is readable. You know, if you have a sign that needs to be clear, like a road sign, right? Maybe, yeah. the, maybe the lighting conditions are bad. Maybe the sign is going to have dirt on it. There are all of these ways in which the quality of your text might get degraded. And so designing it in a way where you're really trying to squeeze out every bit of legibility for the use case it can really make a difference in an environment like that. So one of the things that interested me was that after looking at Helvetica now, when you go back and look at the old Helvetica, it makes it look kind of quaint. Really? And kind of ornate. Look at that G. The G is a big difference, right? That uppercase G actually reminds me a little bit of Product Sans. So you see it a lot in the G. The old Helvetica G has a little beard on it, a little mm-hmm. goatee. Mm-hmm. Whereas the new Helvetica has ditched that. Likewise, if you look at the uppercase R on the old Helvetica, it's like very, looks like a railroad sign, right? It looks like someone with a wide-legged stance, has a certain gallantry to it. Whereas the new uppercase R is simpler. It's just got kind of a diagonal 
line coming out of it. It looks like a lot more basic to me. It looks a little more geometric to me. In the world of typefaces, uh, geometric typefaces are those that more closely resemble basic shapes. They have less ornamentation to them. We're trying to find a comparison. It's actually been really hard to find a comparison between the two. It has been hard, I know. Mm -hmm. It's like, I kind of just want... Do you have the fonts on your computer, Arjuna? No, they're expensive. How much are they? Can we talk about that? No, we haven't. So you can buy the whole... It's called the whole family. I want to say it's like $150. Yeah, it's pricey. I mean, if you're a graphic design specialist for a living, it's quite affordable. But... Mm -hmm. For the rest of us, it's uh, really quite an investment. And a font like Product Sans from Google, that's freely available, right? That's free, correct. Yep. Yep. I wonder if San Francisco is. Huh. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm-hmm. I would guess so. I think any typeface which ships with like an entire brand of tech items is mm-hmm. probably free. There's yeah. just no way that they're going to regulate that. That's kind of interesting to me because I would think that if they developed a really nice font, they'd almost want to hold on to that for their own kind of marketing purposes and things like that, like their own mm. branding. Whereas yeah. when you release it to the wild, you know, people start using it for their lost cat posters and kind of loses its edge. I think that that's why you see like some companies will actually design a custom font just for their logo mm-hmm. and they won't release it. So. Mm-hmm. An example of that was actually, I noticed this, um, I don't know if you know the brand, it's called Nativa or Nativa. They make like coconut oil and they make like various health food stuff. I was looking at their, their logo font and I was like, what font is this? And it's, it's custom, it's a custom hmm. font. Hmm. You can't really find it anywhere. Okay. So yeah, so some companies will do that. But you know, a co- yeah, a company like Apple, for example, they, you know, they actually designed San Francisco to be like, not just their logo font, but like usable on all of their systems. Okay. And so the whole point of it is actually that it's supposed to be kind of a ubiquitous usable font. Mm-hmm. That was the same with Arial. Arial was like a, a redesign of Helvetica, which, you know, was designed to be used on, on all computers. <laughs> One of my big takeaways here is that when I look at Helvetica now, it almost makes me feel like people might have felt about the original Helvetica when it was released. Like it looks kind of plainer and simpler and less ornate and more reductionistic. Mm -hmm. And I just find that interesting how over time, like what we think of as being simple and pared down changes for me it's that idea of getting to the absolute most simplistic essence of a letter right and what is that really Mm -hmm. like when it comes down to it like how do you write a letter with absolutely no extra (laughs) style right it's like styleless i think is what it's aiming for the interesting thing is geometric fonts which in some ways are ostensibly the simplest because they're the most closely based on really basic shapes, right? So a geometric T might just be a vertical line and a horizontal horizontal line, and that's it. Or an O in a geometric font will just be a perfect circle. 
But I don't really know if that, when it really comes down to it, just because maybe the lines are simpler or the shapes are simpler, I don't necessarily know that that makes it a more neutral design.、Uh, and especially like if enough people start using geometric fonts, especially in certain industries like we've seen with Helvetica, it might start to lose some of its neutrality.、Mm-hmm. And so to me, what this highlights more than anything else is that context is just really everything. When it comes to this stuff, what looks simple and modern to us now may well change in the future. Right. People 400 years from now might look back on Helvetica and think, how archaic, <laughs> how decorative. It has that quaint romanticism of the past, right? Yeah. Huh. I wonder. It's hard to imagine, honestly, since it is so geometric, right? Like with the uppercase H, for example, it's literally just bars at right angles to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't think of a way to trim that down. It could be something as simple as if you take a typeface like Helvetica and you just round the corners so that instead of being square, they're rounded,、mm-hmm. all of a sudden you get something that looks very different. And it could be that. That's the way modernism goes in the future, right? Or it could be that modernism moves more towards blockiness. It's not necessarily that one of them's simpler than the other. Or who knows? Maybe Earth won't have gravity then, and we'll have to be able to read things right side up and upside down.、Ooh. And so there have to be like bottom weighting. Yeah, or you know,、um, people are talking about putting screens on all different kinds of things now. So people might actually develop typefaces that are designed to be. Bent more towards or away from the eye. Yeah. Just, just to be clear, I don't think Earth's in danger of losing its gravity. <laughs> I should use my sarcasm voice when I say things like that. <laughs> yeah, you can't put the slash ass in, on the podcast, right? The idea of representation itself I find really profound. And the way that we combine things to form more complex ideas. It's interesting to see how little the alphabet. Has evolved in light of that. And it's made me realize that we want the components of a language by themselves to say as little as possible so that the that when somebody deliberately combines those elements together to say something, that that thing they're trying to say is what's said and not something that's implied by the elements, by the、hmm. nature of the elements. Jumping disciplines a little bit when you talk about. Mathematics, right? I think it's a, a subject of discussion when people come up with like、uh, theorems and, and different levels of mathematics to represent different ideas. I think there's a similar discussion going on there where people are looking to come up with these models, these systems that are the most versatile and that can be used to describe the greatest number of things. And it's interesting to me how, you know, we, we use this decimal system, which actually was,、uh, you know, developed by the Mesopotamians.、Mm-hmm. And that's like still the paradigm of thought that we have in, in mathematics today. I mean, it's probably not the only one, but it's, it's kind of the most commonly accepted paradigm for numbers at the moment.、Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting to think about how that. Basic assumption about how numbers work shapes the entirety of, of what we're able to express with numbers.、Mm-hmm. And I just think about that for language too. Like, I would be really interested to learn a language that's not based in an alphabet, which is pictographically based 
and just try to learn what's different about that, how that changes the shape of my thoughts. Yeah, I would think it would be more limited, to be honest. More limited? You yeah, so? I, because each pictograph, well, maybe not. Each one has meaning in itself, and you can build meaning and do compound meaning by adding them together, or maybe even subtractive meaning. But you, to create a new idea, you would have to create a new pictograph, which would then expand the number of characters in that language or pictographs, right? Right, which has happened over time. Yeah. Yeah. So like hieroglyphics, you can't talk about rocket science with hieroglyphics without adding quite a few characters, probably. <laughs> well, except maybe they were talking about rocket science. <laughs> Conspiracy. Next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Listening Glass. Egyptians were aliens. <laughs> Yeah, it's a whole different approach to language. You know, I wonder if somebody says, well, the character set of my language is 10,000 characters, whereas the character set of your language is 26, mm -hmm. you know, who's limited now, right? But I don't, <laughs> I don't think it is limiting. Because think about how many different words you can write with just eight characters mm -hmm. of a 26-letter language. I think we're definitely butting up against the limits of our knowledge in this area. Yeah. Yeah, it does make me curious to, you know, follow up with like someone who's studied linguistics who has a bit more insight into it. Mm -hmm. But I think in the very least, it does just fascinate me that our brains work in these heuristic ways. We come up with these shorthanded ways of, of communicating. You know, letters on their own may have a certain contextual meaning. And then the words that they form, we stop seeing letters and we start seeing words. And then the words take on a meaning. And then phrases take on meanings. And, you know, when you really start to go into it and you really start to think about, like, what is this A? What is a Z? Mm -hmm. um, what, like, what, what does that mean? What does a Z mean, right? I think that's the thing. Is it, Z is funny because there are so few words with it mm -hmm. that it almost does. It's a small enough sample size that it almost does have a connotation by itself. But... S. Even S. I, I guess there are connotations with these letters that are kind of primitive. Well, yeah, because of the words that we build out of them, you know, yeah. slinky, sexy, sizzling, right? These are all, they're evocative to us because we have our associations based on the words we've used them in. Mm -hmm. Can we rename our podcast then? Just pick all the sexiest letters. Just, just run them, them all together. SZX, <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, we've we've really done some good uh, focus grouping on this podcast here. <laughs> Stay tuned for our rebranded podcast. Yes. Coming to a catcher near you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Listening Glass. If you've enjoyed this show, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends and on social media. Your word of mouth means a lot to us and is a way you can help our humble podcast grow. Find us on our Twitter handle at Listening Glass. You can leave feedback there or by emailing us at listeningglasscast at gmail.com. Join the ongoing discussion in our community by joining our Discord server, linked in our episode description. This episode features the track This in Sitter by Mac Woodruff. The track Dr. Beauchef, Penguin Dentist by Kneebody, 
and also the track Lipton Service Boy by Eero Johannes. We're incredibly grateful to these artists for letting us feature their work. Find more information about them in the episode description. Thanks once again to Gary Hustwit for letting us use his voice in this episode, and do check out his movie if you get a chance. <laughs>